Patrick Alpin, the team of Nebraska, and Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his weekly Monday appearance. That is his weekly Monday appearance is the managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. And what follows as he does every week, Dave Cameron analyzes all baseball. What that means specifically for this edition of Fangraphs Audio is an extended conversation uh, concerning the trade deadline, the moves of the trade deadline, one of the most active that Cameron has seen in his life, he says, as to why it was the, uh, one of the most active. I asked Cameron about that. I asked Cameron to consider in some more depth the piece he wrote for Monday, today in fact, on what the trade deadline reveals about the cost uh, in millions of dollars the teams are willing to pay per win at the trade deadline. And anyone who continues listening will be rewarded with the sentence that follows this uh, portentous comment by Dave Cameron. I realize that I'm in the minority on this and most people... Uh, are going to disagree with this statement, probably. It's Fangraphs Audio. It features managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron, and it begins right now. time i don't know we'll see i don't know what happened that last time could happen again did you go back to europe where the internet is terrible no i'm at my in-laws is the internet terrible there too mm, it's just a, it's a little bit strange it's just all a mobile hotspot. oh interesting so i don't know they can't have internet where they are where where are they they're in the northern michigan there's no internet there at all. Well, they've had they had dial-up, um, dial-up modem until two years ago. Goodness. Yeah. This seems like a reason to not live in northern Michigan. Um. Yeah. I mean, I think when they settled here, it wasn't as big of an <laughs> issue because the internet didn't exist. <laughs> right. At least not I guess publicly. Prob- prob- probably wasn't a huge problem for the settlers. Yeah. Right. Uh. So it's become more of a recent issue. I don't know. They could maybe. They tried a bunch of things, but now they have a mobile hotspot, and so I have 4G connectivity. I would hope uh, you don't want to stream baseball games then, because I think the limit on those things is pretty low, right? It's like five gigabytes. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, no, n- no streaming video for you. No. I yeah. My GIF output has been uh, limited considerably. Yeah. Anyway, but uh, actually, uh, audio apparently, like these conversations, does not take up much in the way of memory. Uh, good, because we don't use much of ours. <laughs> yeah. Cameron. Yeah. Speaking of memory, and this is what we call a professional segue. Speaking of memory, can you, using your memory, think of any trade deadline as active as the most recent one? No, because I don't know that there has been one in my lifetime. Oh, okay, yeah. Now, when you say we judged on activity, is that just, I mean, sheer number of moves or like size of like the value of players changing hands or both uh probably sheer number of moves i mean i guess sheer number of important moves maybe like i think in past years it feels like they've been more spread out like the weeks leading up to the deadline there might have been more activity and then by the time july 31st got there all the good players had already been traded so maybe it just felt larger because they all happened in the span of like six hours and it was like one big move after another uh, but it feels like in past years, too, we've mostly had, you know, fourth outfielders and middle relievers and backhand starters, whereas this year we had, you know, two of the best left-handed starters in baseball, uh, and then, you know, Justin Marzja had been moved earlier in the month. So you had, you know, three high-quality starting pitchers, two of whom are under control for next year, uh, moved in the span of three weeks. 
Yeah. Now, if you were to guess, this is a, this is very much an aside though. If you were to guess of all of the hitters that were traded to contending teams, and by contending, I will use a threshold of like a 10% chance or better of qualifying for the divisional series. Of all the hitters that were moved, which had both the highest war and also the highest WRC plus? Uh, projected or past? Uh, already in 2014. Yeah, it's going to be some, some, uh, well actually I think I, I saw you tweet this out this afternoon, so I, I would be cheating, but it's Justin Masterson, right? Well, okay, so Justin Masterson in August so far has uh, the highest okay. one, but it was Sam, Sam Fold. Sam Fold, right. Sam Fold had a pretty nice, uh, half season in Minnesota. Yeah, right, yeah. So that, that's not with the projections though, I assume that, yeah. uh, probably... Regression is coming. Austin Sam Jackson Fold. or Struble yeah. Cabrera probably. Certainly Austin Jackson. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. Point being, point being, yes, it was very active. Now, let me ask you as to why it was active. Is it possible? Is this merely a function of the number of buyers there are and the, the identity of those buyers? I mean, is it, you know, is it sort of like a math problem every year? It's like, well, there are this many buyers and this many, like, obvious sellers. Or is there something else that would have influenced this season's trade deadline? Well, I think the main reason we see, we saw the two notable moves, uh, on Friday, Thursday, Thursday, I guess, uh, with John Lester and David Price is that you had two teams who probably didn't expect to be sellers going into the year, uh, who are, you know, good teams who have played not well enough to, to be serious playoff contenders. Uh, so therefore you have kind of unusual sellers. Most years, what you have is like the Astros and the Padres and the Twins and you know, the White Sox, like these teams that are clearly rebuilding, they're bad because they don't have good players. <laughs> this is like kind of a uh, a key definition of a bad team is that they don't have guys that good players would want, or at least not a lot of them. Usually you don't end up with teams that won the World Series last year uh, or, you know, have been to the, the playoffs uh, frequently in recent years having guys on the market because those teams are usually still contending. So, uh, I think with the Red Sox and Rays falling out of the race a little bit unexpectedly, you had higher quality talent in Price and Lester than you would normally have on the market. Usually those teams would be keeping those players. And teams that are both, I mean, certainly the Rays have this reputation, and, and it seems as though we could say that about the Red Sox too, is that they're really aggressive about, well, they 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 demand to stay competitive in the next year, and they both appear to be pretty aggressive about changing their rosters to do that. Yeah, I mean, I think in both cases, uh, kind of the fabric that kind of weaves both trades together is that both teams chose short-term value over long-term value. I think, you know, it's clear with the Red Sox, they probably could have gotten significantly more long-term value than what they got with UNS Cespedes, uh, who's only under control for one more year. Uh, and then, you know, they can't even make him a qualifying offer. Uh, so there's no draft pick compensation tied to letting him leave if they don't resign him after next year. He's the kind of player who's probably going to be overpaid in free agency because of his skill set. So he's probably the kind of player that a smart team like the Red Sox won't resign. So really, they're basically renting Cespedes for a year and then letting him walk or maybe trading him next summer. But I think most likely they let him play out the year and then let him leave. Uh, and so the long-term return on John Lester is going to be a competitive balance pick in one year of UNS Cespedes. Uh, so I don't think there's any questions. The Red Sox specifically took uh, short-term value over long-term value because they're just not interested in rebuilding. I mean, you know, if you have David Ortiz and you have, you know, kind of this aging roster with Shane Victorino and and guys who are, uh, 
um, kind of in win now mode. Mike Napoli and Dustin Pedroia, like these guys are not going to have a lot of value in four or five years. Uh, so the Red Sox, I think, are trying to align their assets to try and to win again next year uh, because there's probably a rebuild coming at some point in the future. It won't necessarily be an Astros-style teardown, but at some point the Red Sox are going to need to retool a little bit and get a little younger. Um, but they didn't want to necessarily push the value they were getting for Lester back to the point where the guys they were getting were only going to help when they were needing to rebuild. Right. And it it is, I mean, you mentioned the rebuild. It, I mean, teams of the, the sort of caliber of the Red Sox, whether it's the payroll or the quality of the front office or both, they they don't have those those sort of blow-up type situations. I mean, you could argue, I think, right, that they tried to rebuild a little bit this year insofar as they had uh, what Jackie Bradley and Xander Bogarts, um, you know, in their opening day lineups. Um, and, yeah, but you know, I don't think that was rebuilding, right? They were coming off a World Series championship. I don't think the Red Sox had any consideration that this was going to be a down year. They were just trying to integrate two young players into their lineup who they thought could help them this year. This wasn't necessarily a, oh, we won last year and now we're going to take a step backwards. This was, here are two guys who we think can play at this level and help us win 90 games again. Right, and that's, I mean, I guess my point is that that's how, I guess that's how every team would like to do it, but it seems as though teams that are both smarter and maybe also have more money are able are able to do that on a more consistent basis, to have a sort of slow turnover of their roster as opposed to high highs and low lows. I think that's the big advantage that teams that have a $175 million payroll uh, actually have, is they don't have to bottom out. Um, it's not so much that they can guarantee themselves wins as often or that they can remain contenders every year, but they don't ever have to become terrible. If you spend your money even decently uh, and you have that kind of payroll, you can avoid going into an Astros or Twins-style um, you know, floor where you're really terrible and just collecting draft picks. Right, and then, and it seems as though, and you, you sort of gestured toward this earlier, that with their particular acquisition or with, with their – the return on the David Price trade, uh, the the raise, I mean, in getting Nick Franklin as opposed to an Addison Russell type player, that's that probably, uh, you know, is a sort of declaration of what the Rays are interested in as well. Yes and no. So I think, and I, I realize that I'm in the minority on this, and most people uh, are going to disagree with this statement probably. I don't think Addison Russell was ever on the table for David Price. Uh, so certainly I know, I mean, the A's called about David Price. Uh, there were certainly some negotiations. Uh, we know that there was interest from the A's, but we don't know that Addison Russell was ever on the table, and I don't think he was, or at least my guess would be that he wasn't. Um, because if you look at Jeff Samarja and, and J- Jason Hamill too, uh, what the A's got was, you know, a pitcher who's not that different from Price. He's not as good, but he's not that much worse, and he's going to make half of what Price is going to make next year. Uh, for the A's, they can afford Jeff Samarja. They probably can afford David Price. If you're giving up, you know, a top five, top ten prospect like Russell's considered to be, and you're getting a, a year and a half of value versus half of a year and then trying to flip price this winter, uh, which is what the A's would have had to do, that's a dramatic difference. And I can see uh, how the Russell for Samarja trade makes sense for the A's, where a Russell for price trade would not. So I'm not sure that the the narrative that the Rays chose Franklin and Smiley over elite young prospects is actually true. I think people are overstating David Price's trade value, and David Price was not worth Addison Russell or any prospect of that note, and this is what David Price was worth. It's not so much that the Rays settled for lesser talent. It's that David Price's trade value was dramatically overstated in the run-up to the deadline. Right. And it does – 
I've seen this in a number of cases, right, too, but I think maybe sometimes in discussion of uh, certain players leading up to the deadline, um, there is a, there is this sort of... I, people might see the value of the player in and of himself, but as opposed to seeing the value of the asset as a whole. Yeah, I think there's no question that one of the biggest kind of divides between maybe my opinion on this and Dan Zaborski, who I think wrote a, a similar article for ESPN saying that the Rays deal was actually fine, um, and kind of the people who are defending this deal for Tampa Bay and the people who hate it for the Rays and think they got totally hosed and they didn't get enough is whether you value a player based on asset value or his on-field production. If you place almost all of the emphasis on what the player does on the field and you put very little emphasis on team control and contract price and return on investment in terms of the overall picture of production to price ratio, then David Price is amazing because he really is one of the 10 best starting pitchers in baseball or 10, 15, whatever. He's a very good number one starting pitcher. Uh, and Drew Smiley will never be that. Nick Franklin will never be that. Most likely. We don't know for sure. But it's very unlikely that either of those players will turn into David Price down the line. However, if you're looking at it from some kind of uh, economic standpoint and you do factor in costs and you, you look at what the Rays can do with the money they're reinvesting that they're saving from trading away David Price and saying, okay, Drew Smiley and Nick Franklin both look like maybe average major league players, maybe slightly above, uh, depending on how much you like them. Uh, and they're going to make, you know, between them, two and a half million dollars next year, three million dollars, whatever Drew Smiley gets in arbitration, Franklin will make the league minimum. Uh, that's a huge value. But people, I think, are generally disinclined to see average players making little money as, as very valuable. And they're inclined to see players like David Price, who are very good but also very expensive, as extremely valuable. When in the baseball economy, I think there's a pretty good case to be made that Franklin and Smiley are more valuable than David Price. Right. Now, uh, we're talking about the Rays' future a little bit. Um, without confusing either ourselves or the listeners too much, I would like to also talk about the the future, the, the near future of the Red Sox, um, in particular, uh, involving the player that they that they traded away and the player for whom for whom they traded, um, in particular, Ioannis Cespedes. Um, so Ioannis Cespedes was signed as a free agent out of an international free agent out of Cuba. Correct. That, that's true, or out of wherever he went after Cuba. I guess right. the Dominican, yeah. maybe. Yeah. What by what rules are these players governed in terms of the time at which they because you said that you know, Cespedes will reach free agency or will be eligible for qualifying after after next season, but what rules generally govern these players and is Cespedes an exception to those rules? Yeah, so basically any player signing uh, a contract in Major League Baseball has to sign what is called the Uniform Player Contract. It's the UPC for short. And it basically states, here's the uh, term under which you're uh, under club control. It guarantees uh, that you cannot become a free agent uh, until you've accrued at least six years of service time. This is the deal that every player has to sign, except if you have some amount of leverage, like you want a Cespedes or a significant player coming over from Japan, uh, these deals frequently um, will include language that uh, gets away from the six-year minimum. And so it's not so much that uh, there's rules governing Cespedes' contract that don't govern other players or that because he signed out of Cuba that the contract is different. He signed the same contract as everyone else, except his agent negotiated a clause into the deal saying that he had to be released at the end of his fourth year. So uh, essentially the A's, or now the Red Sox, will still have uh, three years of team control 
left over Cespedes under the uniform player contract, except for this clause supersedes that part of the deal and says after next year, the team who owns Cespedes' rights now, the Red Sox, must release him. Uh, it's just part of the contract. It was, in other words, the um, Cespedes' agent negotiated a four-year deal uh, into the uniform player contract by requiring him to be released after next season. And and this is not that uncommon for uh, kind of the older veterans who come over from Japan and say, I don't want to be under team control for six years. I don't want to have to go through the arbitration process. Uh, I think like Hideki Matsui signed a three-year deal with the Yankees when he came over. Uh, Hisashi Iwakuma with the Mariners right now. There's a bunch of these guys who've come over and said, I don't want to be under team control for six years. So I'm going to have my agent work in some kind of language that says, uh, you have to release me after X number of years. And that makes them a free agent, but also a free agent in a non-traditional sense that they're not uh, eligible for the qualifying offers. The Red Sox won't be able to make Cespedes a qualifying mm-hmm. offer because he's not going to have qualified as a free agent. He's going to get released by the team. Okay, right. Now, how often does this has it, does this ever happen with um, like players who sign through the draft? Now, mm-hmm. uh, and I think it's mainly just because the the incentives are aligned a little bit differently, where if you're a player signing through the draft, not only do you not have that much leverage, but you're planning on having some kind of long, prosperous career in Major League Baseball, where signing for many years or signing up with an organization for a long term makes sense, where if you're a veteran Major League free agent, uh, you know, especially if you're a Matsui or Hiroki Kuroda or one of these guys, and you're already in your mid-30s, you don't want to be going through arbitration at age 38. Right. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Now, uh, you mentioned with regard to the to both the Red Sox and the Rays, and what maybe made this a special trade deadline was that we had a, a couple teams in the in um, Tampa Bay and Boston who are accustomed to winning, and therefore they had more talent uh, available than, than teams usually do uh, who find themselves, I guess, out of playoff contention at this stage of the season. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, uh, that is sort of possibly informing the possibility that uh, John Lester, who was just traded away from Boston to Oakland, uh, might have some interest or or not. I don't. I guess that's the, the, the basis of the question. But might have some interest in re-signing with the Boston Red Sox after the season is over. Is that is that the case? Yeah, but I think part of the kind of unstated reason why the the Red Sox traded Lester to the A's, or at least considered to be a factor, is that the A's are not going to re-sign John Lester. There's like basically zero chance that the A's are going to engage Lester in significant discussion talks at the end of the year. And there's uh, some thought that the Red Sox, in wanting to sign Lester back, did not want to send him to a team like, say, St. Louis, who was interested in him or potentially interested in him, because a lot of players who get traded to St. Louis in midseason end up staying there. And they say, oh, man, I love it here. This is a great city. This is a great ballpark. The organization wins. Uh, I'm going to take a deal and never hit free agency. And I think, um, you know, we saw that with the Tigers a couple years ago with Anibal Sanchez. Uh, the the Red Sox didn't want to take that risk. If they want to re-sign John Lester, their best bet was to send him to a team who was going to ensure that he hit the free agent market again. And the A's are, you know, maybe one of the few contenders uh, out there who are going to uh, be interested in acquiring him without being interested in signing him this winter. Right. Now, this doesn't seem like it's something that would happen very often, is that a team or a player is traded by a team and then immediately resigns with them that offseason. Yeah, know. I mean, it, it happens uh, occasionally. Um, it's it's not that frequent, but it does happen. Okay. Yeah, I was just curious. Um, yeah. Let's see. So uh, we talked about blah, blah, blah. You had, uh, um, you had a, 
a post today trying attempting to calculate the price of a win given the given the trades that had occurred at the deadline. Correct. And as you yourself admit, it is an inexact science. But you it, you it reached, is barely science. <laughs> you re, you reached some figures though that uh, I think or there there were, there was one number that at least came up twice, which was fourteen six. Yeah, basically all of the numbers come out to about fifteen million. Right. Uh, like you know the the price and uh, um, some to trades come out to exactly fourteen six based on the assumptions that I made. And I think the Lester deal came out to fifteen zero. So you know pretty similar. Right. Those are um, the the sort of calculations that one has to perform to get to that last number though uh, can be it it looked pretty daunting. I mean, there's well, a lot to consider, not- I guess. So, correct. There's a lot of variables. It's not so much that it's daunting as it is there's just so many places where reasonable people could disagree. I mean, when you're talking about the potential for David Price to get a qualifying offer above and beyond what the potential for Austin Jackson to get a qualifying offer was, and then the potential future value of the pick that they may or may not get uh, if they don't re-sign David Price, which they'll probably try and do, versus if they didn't re-sign Austin Jackson and made him a qualifying <laughs> offer, uh, right? Like, you're just, pick a number. Like, uh, there's so many assumptions in there that you don't know, uh, what the value actually is. So I just, I just picked one. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, tur- yeah, t- uh, anyway, the numbers you picked, uh, turned out to yield, uh, similar results. I mean, does that, I guess intuitively, does that make sense that where we see uh, f- free agents going on the open market before the season at what f- somewhere between five and six or five and seven million, six to seven million, six to seven. Six yeah, to seven. It, lo- it looks like, and it should be noted, the, the three guys who were most prominently discussed in the piece are all starting pitchers. There's an argument to be made that starting pitchers are more valuable at this point in the season than they are in the off season because you can overweight their importance in the postseason, and you can say, you know, maybe you're only going to make. 20% of my starts in the regular season, but you can make 25% of my starts in the postseason. So for a position player, the multiple multiple is probably not going to be as high. But it looks like, you know, maybe as high as double the off-season price of a win in, in season. Right. Which, that's a good I guess that's an argument for why you should, I mean, is that, a, or I should say, is that an argument for why you should acquire all the talent before the season? Or is it, or are you doing it at mid-season because you know that, uh, you you know what you're acquiring that talent for. I guess. Yeah, I mean, so it would be a price. It would be a good argument to acquire all that talent ahead of time if you had perfect knowledge. But I think this is kind of um, so. There was an analogy that I was going to try and work into the piece that didn't really fit, but I'll make it on the podcast because I can I can make it work better in story form than I could in written form. But let's say you were working for a job and your your employer was going to transfer you, and they said, hey, at some point in the next couple months. Uh, we're gonna, we're gonna send you to some other city and you're gonna have to move. Uh, we don't know exactly where. We're not gonna tell you what city. We have branches all across the world. Um, but it's just prepare to move. Put your house in the market. Figure out, you know, like, uh, what you wanna do to set yourself up to move. By the way, we're a heating and air company. So we're gonna give you the right to pre-buy an air conditioning system for your new home in whatever place you're going to. It's only gonna cost you, say, $4,000. Uh, you know, it's a pretty good deal for central air, uh, if, especially if you end up in Dubai or, uh, you know, Arizona or one of these places where air conditioning is, is needed. You would say, oh man, I, I have a chance to really get some value here. But if you end up in Alaska, you just wasted $4,000 of your money. Uh, and if you don't know where you're getting transferred, you necessarily value that thing 
less than once you know. So in three months, if they come to you and say, hey, man, you're going to Florida, uh, you're, you're going to buy that air conditioning system, and you're going to pay more for it than you would have a few months ago when you didn't know where you were going to be. Teams who are in the race right now have a significantly higher uh, value of a win than they did in the offseason. Because, it, you know, even if you're the best team in baseball on paper, in the offseason, your playoff odds are 25, 30%. Uh, you're unlikely to make the postseason. You know, maybe maybe you can push it to 40% if you think your odds or your team is really, really good. But no matter what, you're always going to say, it's more likely that I miss the postseason than I make the postseason just because I'm contending with so many other teams and so much can go wrong over a 162-game season. Uh, right now, you look at, like, the Tigers and the A's, these teams have, like, 90% chances of getting to the postseason. It will be shocking if, if the Tigers miss out on the playoffs this year. So it's easy for them to say, David Price is going to pitch for me in October when they couldn't say that in the offseason, and that drives up their their willingness to pay for him. What I'm curious about now is uh, the exact circumstances under which you developed that metaphor. Uh, well, I will say that I live in a state where central air conditioning is important <laughs> in the summer. It is warm here in North Carolina pretty frequently, and I own an air conditioning system that is quite old uh, and has not yet died, but I have considered replacing it anyway. Okay. Uh, so it is maybe drawing from personal experience of, like, the risks versus rewards of replacing an air conditioning system versus living without one for a little while if it conks out in the middle of summer. Right. Right. Well, I guess the other thing with like a heater, if you're now typically are not HVAC systems uh, sort of aren't they aligned? Isn't the, is it not the same thing that's that's providing heat as it is cool at some level? No, not necessarily. So you have a furnace and an air conditioning unit. So the the uh-huh. same company will sell you the same same products, and in some cases you can have like a heat pump that will do both. But um, like for us, we have uh, uh, natural gas heat and electric air. Uh, oh, really? They are they are different systems. They're totally different, huh? Yeah, I mean a furnace is, uh, you know, burns things when you think about furnaces. Yeah, you generally, get something in your yeah. mind. They create heat, and uh, you don't generally want to turn on your furnace in order to cool the house. Right. Yeah, right. So yeah, uh, so right, but the Tigers know that they're going to be in the playoffs more or less. Yeah, and so they can put a higher value on David Price now than they could have uh, over the winter. Do you find that teams are pretty rational, or that they're let's see, that their moves, that the moves that they make at the deadline. Are pretty, are, are I guess they, they they're rational relative to where, for example, like the Fangraphs uh, playoff odds have like have them, uh, like because I, I was just using like ten percent chance of making the divisional series as a threshold, and it seems as though above those are the teams that you would consider the buyers, or maybe fifteen percent, and then below those are the teams you consider the sellers. Is I mean, do you find that the teams act rationally along those lines? Is there a threshold that you've identified? I mean, for the most part, but I don't think that all teams act the same way. I mean, I think the Red Sox had like five or six or six percent playoff odds, something in that range, when they decided to sell a week before, two weeks before, when they were, you know, closer to ten percent, they weren't selling yet. So I think we kind of see that there was kind of a drop uh, where they just said, okay, the math is against us. I think that was actually Ben Sherrington's quote in the paper this morning yeah. uh, or yesterday, one of the two, where he was like, the math just turned against us, and it became unlikely we were going to make the playoffs. Um, but then you see, like, you know, the Indians sold. And they had the same playoff odds as the Mariners who bought. 
right? But both teams have about 15% chance of making the playoffs. The Indians traded away Justin Masterson and Drupal Cabrera. The Mariners traded for Austin Jackson and Kristen Norfia. So I think there's different motivations. Uh, you certainly see the Royals who are uh, dead set on going for it no matter what the odds say, and they just don't care about the numbers, and they're going to go for it no matter what because they're already all in on the James Shields trade and kind of their desire to win in the short term. Uh, you know, they probably could have been 10 games under 500 and they still wouldn't have sold. So um, I think different teams have different levels at which they're willing to sell. But for the most part, I think uh, kind of that 10% cutoff seems about right. Yeah, right. And so I mean, you're, you're also mentioning the Mariners and the Royals, of course, two clubs which have not really uh, been in contention for the playoffs in recent years. So what, I mean, do, do we feel like they have a greater incentive to capitalize on those opportunities when they're closer to well they certainly they certainly feel that way whether it's real or not i mean i think you can make an argument for kind of like the pirates last year showing that there's a lot of value in a team that has been historically terrible and has kind of alienated their fan base making a big run and creating a big revenue boost by getting fans interested again and giving them a reason to care about the product so maybe there's more uh marginal revenue to be gained for a team like the royals or the mariners to make a run um, and I don't think there's any question those franchises are tired of losing. And so they internally feel that it's uh, the sooner they can win, the better. Um, whether this actually plays out to where a team in this situation who's, you know, maybe a mid-revenue, mid-payroll mid team should be taking shots with future assets in order to try and accelerate their timetable, whether that's wise or not, I think I would probably argue against it because these teams also need to value the the assets that you're trading away to take these shots at a higher level than a team that has $180 million payroll. So the, uh, the waiver, so the, the non-waiver trade deadline has passed, but the yeah. teams can still trade players until the 31st. Well, you can trade players till the end of the year. To the end of the year. But they what? They will not be eligible for the playoffs after September 1st. After yeah. September 1st. You can make a trade in August that still gets a guy on a playoff roster. Uh, September trades, you're just trading for the regular season. Right. So, uh, no, of course, uh, was, was it two or three years ago now? Two years ago? <laughs> oh. Hey, Liberty. Liberty agrees that it was two years ago. Yeah, two years ago. <laughs> the Red Sox and the, and the Dodgers made uh, a huge trade. <laughs> biggest trade of that year. Biggest trade in a couple years. Uh, yeah, that was the big uh, the salary dump extravaganza. Right, and that was a that was a waiver de- a waiver deal. It was because all of the players the Red Sox were trading were massively overpriced. Right, and then a number of the players they got back were players to be named later. Uh, well, that's how they got around the deal. Yes, yeah. so if right. you trade prospects in August, the way to get around it is that instead of having the player clear waivers, where obviously a good prospect would not, you make him a player to be named later, and then you just trade him after the waiver deadline expires. Right. Okay. So, uh, do you expect? Do you anticipate, or if not expect 100%, at least what are the odds that, uh, you know, a notable player will be traded uh, over the next three weeks or whatever? Oh, yeah, I would say it's 100% we'll see some notable player traded. And I think, you know, uh, so I'll probably write an article on this tomorrow. The Phillies screwed up pretty badly at the trade deadline by not trading Cole Hamels, because I think he's not going to get through waivers. Uh, His contract is good enough that... Uh, um, you know, teams are not going to let him slide all the way through. But the rest of the Phillies are a bunch of overpriced underperformers. Guys like A.J. Burnett, Marlon Byrd, Jonathan Pavelbon, these guys will either slide through waivers or get far enough through where it's possible that the Phillies will be able to make some deals. So as much as, like, the Phillies, I think, screwed up with Cole Hamels, the rest of their guys not trading them last week, not such a big deal. Uh, and I think there's a few other sellers who you look at, like maybe Josh Willingham or Alex Rios, 
these guys are not so valuable and they're not so cheap that the difference in value last week versus this week is going to be dramatic. So I think we're going to see, you know, a decent number of these kind of like rental relievers or rent a mediocre outfielder. Uh, these guys are going to probably get moved uh, with some frequency over the next few weeks. It's actually like, so for a team like the Phillies, um, you mentioned Cole Hamels, who's getting paid a lot, but is also still pretty good. Uh, is it a huge bummer for that sort of team when a wealthy, a wealthy team like the Red Sox um, is uh, so close to the top in terms of waiver rights? Um, yeah, because, right. because you have a, a rich team that can just be like, yeah, we'll take we'll yeah. take Cole Hamels and we'll, yeah. I, I think that's one of the problems with the Phillies is if the if the Phillies put Cole Hamels on waivers, I think the Red Sox absolutely claim him and they say, you know, we will take him off your hands or we will give you something for him, but not a ton. And the Red Sox become the only team the Phillies can negotiate with, and a deal probably doesn't happen because Hamels doesn't have that much more uh, value to the Red Sox in 2014 than he does to the Phillies. Um, so there's no real incentive for the Red Sox to overpay versus one of these teams that would you know, be able to put him in their stretch run rotation and then use him in the postseason. So I think the Phillies are going to be stuck with Hamels until this offseason, which, you know, getting stuck with a good player on a good contract isn't the end of the world. Uh, but I think as the Phillies have seen with Cliff Lee uh, and we've seen with other pitchers before, pitchers get hurt, pitchers get worse. Uh, it's going to be more difficult for the Phillies to trade Hamels for a bundle of uh, value in return uh, as they could have last week. I mean, you know, as we just talked about, we're estimating that the, the cost that teams are paying for elite starting pitchers was near 15 million a win. We think in the offseason it's going to be 7 or 8 million a win. Uh, there's no way the Phillies get this winter what they would have gotten for Hamels last week. Right. Uh, one last thing. Brent Cashman made three deals that were not huge, but uh, all seemed could be promising. Well, I guess, and that's not even including Brandon McCarthy, but right at the deadline, he, he acquired Martin Prado, Chase Headley, and uh, Stephen Drew. And, and then it, that, in conjunction with the Brandon McCarthy, that's, that seems like a, a lot of. Uh, with smallish deals that could have um, that could have some upside to them. Is that a, is that a, an accurate statement? Yeah, I think I kind of love what the Yankees did. And the Yankees, so the, I think the Yankees' approach to this trade deadline was uh, almost the exact one I would suggest to a team kind of on the playoff bubble, or you don't necessarily think you're going to make the playoffs. You know, they're more likely to miss them than make them, especially because you're in the second wild card race and even making the postseason means you're going to play a single elimination game in Anaheim or in Oakland. So I think not giving up the farm uh, for, you know, kind of a stretch run that may or may not happen is is wise. But you look at what they did. Chase Headley and Brady McCarthy and Martin Prado um, and, you know, Stephen Drew, they went and just, instead of focusing on one big-time guy, they went and acquired, like, probably three or four wins of upgrades uh, all around the diamond, made smaller moves, uh, that aren't going to really hurt them, didn't really give up much of their farm system, uh, and maybe have as much impact uh, as any team upgrading their roster. It might not work out because they have a decent-sized hole to dig out of, uh, but in terms of just overall upgrades, I think the Yankees probably did more to help their team than anybody. Yeah, all right. Well, you've uh, fulfilled your obligation this week, Dave Cameron, unless you have anything to add of note. Uh, no. Okay. I think uh, Liberty is quiet, so we can we can sign off in yeah, peace. Now. Yeah, yeah, that's right. All right, uh, we'll stick around for one second, but in the meantime, thank you, Dave Cameron. All right, thank you. All right, that's Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs. Carson Sestouli, who's been Fangraphs Audio. Mm-hmm.